Thanks, Emilio, and good morning. It is great to see you. Thanks for choosing to be here uh, at the 9 a.m. service, deciding to come and to worship with us. And it's good to be together. Uh, as Emilio just prayed, my name's Daniel. I'm one of the pastors. And we are in a sermon series titled Revived by Grace, a study in the life of Jacob in the Old Testament book of Genesis. Started this a few weeks ago. Uh, and the story of Jacob, if you're familiar with it, maybe, maybe you are, maybe you aren't, but it, it is a story of sovereign grace at work in unexpected ways in and through sinful people in order to transform lives and usher in salvation. This, this story is a story of God working sovereignly by his grace in unexpected ways. Jacob, he is a complex character. He has many weaknesses. Uh, his name literally means cheater. He is skilled in deception. He's a pretty good liar. And he's not too bad at stealing. At the same time, he's passionate, ambitious. He's the one in whom God has chosen and promised to, to use in order to bring salvation to the world. Two weeks ago, if you were here, Evan preached on Genesis chapter 28, where Jacob had this incredible encounter with God in a dream about a stairway to heaven. And in this dream, he beheld God at work in the world, and he heard God reassure him of his promise that salvation would come through Jacob and his family and extend into the world. And it was through this dream that Jacob is spiritually awakened to the presence, to the promises of God. And what we're going to see this morning is that though Jacob is spiritually awakened, he's not fully arrived to spiritual maturity. He still has a long way to go in the journey of transformation, which is true for all of us. If God has awakened us spiritually, if you're in a relationship with God by faith, you still have a long way to go in your own journey of spiritual transformation. You have not arrived at completion. You are like Jacob. I am like Jacob, complex, a mixture of good and bad. Every single one of us are works in progress for the rest of our lives. And our passage this morning in Genesis 29, verses 1 to 30, is going to show us that transformation happens by the power of God's providential grace. And so if you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand, and we're going to give attention to Genesis 29, verses 1 to 30. Realize it's fairly lengthy, uh, but I think it's important for us to get the, the, the full story. So this is God's word to us this morning. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it, for out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large, and when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep, and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? They said, We are from Haran. He said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, We know him. He said to them, is it well with him? They said, it is well. And see, Rachel's daughter is coming with the sheep. He said, behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go, pasture them. But they said, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now, as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son, and she ran and told her father. 
As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things, and Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah. The name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this that you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. Isaiah tells us the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Pray with me. Lord God, we need you to speak to us this morning. We thank you that the word of God shakes the wilderness and strips the forest bare. All glory is due to you because of the power of your voice and the power of your word. And so we ask that you would mold us and shape us and transform us because we have heard from you. I pray that you would remove me, the preacher, so that Christ and Christ alone is seen and encountered. And I pray that the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts will be pleasing to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, yesterday uh, I had the privilege of officiating the wedding of Nick Powers and Morgan McGowan, two members of our church. They've been faithful members for years now here at Christ Central. And it was a great, great weekend to celebrate God's provision of bringing them together. And, but I've got to be honest with you, uh, when I'm officiating a wedding, I always feel a little bit of pressure to not mess up the big day. I've lost count now on how many weddings that I've officiated. I've been blessed to officiate uh, a good number of weddings. I, I love uh, getting to officiate weddings. Uh, but there's one wedding that sticks out in my mind, and it's the one that I messed up. It took place in Athens, Georgia in the middle of July. It was a beautiful venue. I loved this couple. Uh, he was a part of campus ministry when I was at UNC. But it was an outdoor wedding in Athens, Georgia in the middle of July. And on this day, it was about 103 degrees, literally. It felt like a sauna. Uh, And I'm pretty sure I was wearing my clerical robe over my suit this day. And so if you've ever seen like a high school wrestler wrap himself in garbage bags while running in order to cut weight for a wrestling match, that's kind of how I felt on this day. And I was worried about the 100 people sitting directly in the sunlight on 103 degree weather day and I was concerned I might pass out and so I flew through the ceremony 
I was moving so, so quick that I missed the congregational hymn that everybody was ready to sing together. I missed the prayer that I was supposed to pray for the, this couple. I mean, I jumped from homily to vows to benediction so fast because I was ready for us all to get out of there. And at the reception, this couple, very, very gracious and very kind, came up to me, and they definitely let me know that I missed some important parts uh, on their big day. And to this day, I, I beat myself up on messing up their wedding day. Well, Genesis 29 makes me feel a little better because Jacob's wedding <laughs> went about as wrong as it could go. Right? On Jacob's big day, he woke up next to the wrong woman. Talk about a nightmare. Right? Jacob the deceiver gets deceived in our text. Right? Jacob was spiritually awakened by God in a dream about a stairway to heaven just before this passage. But in our passage, we see that, that Jacob needs to grow up into spiritual maturity. That a Christian does not become spiritually mature overnight. As Eugene Peterson said, the journey of the Christian life is a long obedience in the same direction. The journey of transformation takes a lifetime. And so I want us to look at two things this morning. The need for transformation and how are we transformed. The need and then how are we transformed. Let's look first at the need. Verses 1 to 14 in Genesis chapter 29 is a scene that centers around a well. Hebrew scholar Robert Alter calls this a type scene, meaning it's similar to an original scene that the reader would have already read, which is the scene in Genesis chapter 24 that centers around a well. And there in Genesis 24, Abraham's servant comes to the same land, possibly the same well, and finds Rebekah, who will become Isaac's wife. And Alter notes that type scenes are intended to cause the reader to compare and contrast. And so I want us to compare and contrast Genesis 24 and Genesis 29. And in doing so, I think we see Jacob's need for transformation. In Genesis 24, Abraham's servant arrives at the well and immediately prays to the Lord for the Lord's guidance and direction. Abraham's servant sees Rebekah, and the first thing he does is examine her character. He uses spiritual discernment to see her character as she draws water, not just for him, but also for his camels. And God is leading and he's providentially working and providing in both Genesis 24 and in Genesis 29. But in Genesis 29, Jacob is prayerless and God's not mentioned at all. Instead, Jacob is pretty self-confident. He comes to the well and there's a large stone that needs to be rolled away in order to water the sheep. And as Rachel is coming towards them, Jacob sees the beauty of Rachel, and he flexes his muscles. He rolls the stone away that normally takes three to four shepherds to roll away. Jacob's displaying his strength. As we say in the Mason house, he's giving beautiful Rachel a ticket to the gun show, right? <laughs> he is flexing and showing his muscles, his broad shoulders. He is showing off for Rachel. And then he celebrates by kissing her, which was a custom in the ancient Near East, to greet family with a kiss. And, and then he weeps aloud because he's fired up about the provision of Rachel to be his wife. But there is still no mention of God. There's no prayer offered by Jacob. There's no discernment. There's no reliance on God. And so they go to meet Rachel's dad, his uncle Laban. And Jacob the deceiver is about to be deceived. Jacob meets his match. Laban loves, loves him some Laban. I mean, Laban is only about Laban. And in Genesis 24, as Abraham's servant meets Rebekah, 
Laban, Rebekah's brother, is present. In Genesis 24, it says that, that Laban's eyes immediately look at the ring and the bracelets on the servant's arms. That Laban realizes that if his sister goes with Abraham's servant and marries Isaac, it will be an opportunity for him to gain wealth. And in Genesis 29, Laban is true to form and he's selfishly opportunistic. Verse 13, Laban hears the news of Jacob. He runs to him, embraces him, kisses him, makes him feel loved and secured. And then he brings Jacob into his house. And Jacob was a little bit too eager to share everything with Laban. He spills his guts, tells Laban everything. He lacks the spiritual discernment to know who he's dealing with. Again, Laban's only concerned about Laban, and Laban now knows because Jacob shared everything that Jacob doesn't have any money to pay the bride price. And so Laban sees the broad shoulders of Jacob by which he rolled the stone away. And Laban knows this is an opportunity to squeeze as much work as possible out of the strength of Jacob. And Laban, he doesn't care if he has to use his daughters as pawns in his own scheme. And so he offers Rachel to Jacob if Jacob will work for seven years. And again, there's no prayer offered to God. Jacob's not asking God what he should do. Jacob is clearly trusting in himself and his own ingenuity and abilities. And so you have to wonder, what if Jacob had trusted God? What if Jacob had prayed? What if he had sought God's guidance? Maybe the Lord would have opened another way. Instead, God allows Jacob to make his own decisions. And so Jacob strikes a deal, seven years of hard work for Rachel to be his wife. And then the big day finally comes and Laban is crafty and cunning and he uses the customs of the day, eating and feasting. He makes Jacob feel fat and happy. They're drinking. He makes sure Jacob gets a fair share of alcohol so he's not in control of his faculties. And then he uses the darkness of the night so Jacob couldn't see. And in verse 25 says, and in the morning when Jacob woke up, behold, it was Leah. It's a nightmare. And Leah is disregarded, used by her father. She's rejected by Jacob, and Jacob is enraged. He's angry, and he asks Laban, what have you done? Why deceive me? The pot calling the kettle black. And then, and then Laban twists the knife, and he says, it's not so done to give the younger before the first, firstborn, right? This is a clear jab, if you were here a few weeks ago, a clear jab at Jacob the younger taking the birthright from Esau the oldest. Uh, Laban is saying, you might do things that way, Jacob, but, but that's not the way we do it around here. And then, Jay, and then Laban says, if you want Rachel, you need to work another seven years. And verse 30 says, Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah, so he works another seven years. Jacob's spiritual immaturity is on full display. He doesn't rely on God. He acts on his impulse. He lacks wisdom to discern. Jacob needs to be spiritually transformed. So what can we learn about our need for transformation from this story? I want to give you three questions to ask. Here's the first. Have you ever consciously or subconsciously thought, why do I need to seek the Lord when this feels so right? Why do I need to seek the Lord when this feels so right? Jacob sees beautiful Rachel and the dopamine in his brain starts firing and he thinks this must be right because it feels so good. Spiritual immaturity is revealed by a reliance on our subjective feelings over the truth of God. I'm not sure there's a better mantra in our times than do what feels right to you. 
do what feels right to you type of living. It places your feelings as the ultimate authority in your life. You determine right and wrong based on how you feel. But for the Christian, God and God's Word has ultimate authority. His ways are higher than our ways. His ways are better than our ways. So we trust His Word, and it's a light into our path. Give a side note here. To, to those of you who are dating or want to date, you want to be married, please look at more than just how you feel. What does God want for you and a spouse? What does God want for marriage and allow that to guide you in your dating? To all of us, just because something feels right doesn't mean it is right. We must allow God and his word to guide us. His word must be a lamp unto our feet. Here's the second question I'll ask you. Have you ever entrusted yourself to someone and later regretted it? Jacob doesn't have the spiritual maturity to see through the deception of Laban. He's too trusting. And in the end, it cost him 14 years of labor. Jesus in John chapter 2 shows us that spiritual maturity is not always entrusting yourself to people. John 2 verse 24, Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. Jesus knows that sin lives in the heart of every person. And therefore, wisdom is needed to discern if you can trust or not trust certain people. Spiritual maturity is revealed by a gullibility to overtrust and to not discern God's guidance and leading with wisdom. Here's the third question. How have you relied on yourself to make your own path straight rather than God? Well-known proverb, Proverbs 3, verses 5 to 6 says, Lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him, acknowledge God. Jacob did not acknowledge God once in our passage. He thought he was smart enough, strong enough to figure out life on his own terms. You might be highly competent, smart, skilled, savvy, but it is a sign of being a spiritual infant to think and act as though you're able to make your own path straight. In all your ways, acknowledge God. When you stumble and fall, acknowledge God. When you succeed, acknowledge God. In all your ways, lean not on your own understanding. We all need to be transformed. We are all works in progress. And so my last point is how does transformation happen? How are we transformed? If you were here when we started this sermon series, I, I started by saying that grace is how a person is transformed. And I gave you this definition from Reverend Paul Zoll, that grace is love that seeks you out when you have nothing to give in return. Grace is love coming at you that has nothing to do with you Grace is being loved when you are unlovable. Jacob had put his trust in his own feelings, in his own understanding, in his own abilities. Jacob had made his bed, but God did not let him lie in it. God pours out his grace to transform Jacob by way of providence and by way of discipline. Let's look first at by way of providence. The Westminster Short Catechism defines providence this way. God's providence is his most holy, wise, powerful, powerful, preserving of every creature and every action, which means everything that happens in this world happens according to God's providence. Jacob may not offer a prayer. Our passage may not mention God, but that does not mean God is not presently at work. God is still working, bringing 
Jacob to Rachel. God is even at work bringing Jacob to Leah through Laban, the great deceiver. Providence gives us confidence that God is working in the midst of sin and even through sin. He's not the author of sin, but God works through it. I heard a pastor uh, tell a story about a man who was sailing the seas in the 1700s. This man made his living by making transatlantic voyages, and he was preparing to leave and, and leave everything behind and settle in America. And he was on his final voyage. He was traveling with his fiancée when bad weather came upon them. And, and the storm was fierce. The waves high as, as houses came crashing over the boat, thunderclapped all around. The only light was the flash of lightning cutting through the darkness. The wind roared back and forth, making it a very frightful night. And as the man piloted the vessel, his fiancée emerged from below and frantically ran toward him. And she was weeping and proclaiming that death would be their fate. And the sailor, seeking to comfort her, said, God will see us through. How can you be sure, the woman asked. The man drew his sword and pointed it at his fiancée, asking, are you afraid? No. Why not, asked the sailor. His fiancée responded, because I know the heart behind the hand. And so it is with I and God, he said. I know the heart behind the hand. Listen, God is at work in your life through providence. Nothing's a mistake. It's not chance. God is guiding and he's directing you even when you are in prayer. Even when you're not acknowledging him, God is using all things to make you more dependent. On him to bring about spiritual maturity and transformation in your life. And if you have a hard time trusting his hand, would you know that the heart of God behind the hand is always one of love, mercy, and grace? It is a heart that moves toward you when you offer nothing in return. God is at work through providence. God also pours out his grace and is at work through discipline. This is not always easy to talk about because uh, th that word has some uh, negative connotations in our mind, but providence doesn't mean that things are going to always be smooth and easy in the Christian life. I mean, God does not bind our wills. We all have human agency and we're able to make our own choices. Jacob made choices to trust Laban, to marry at night, which resulted in waking up to Leah and working another seven years for Rachel. Jacob worked 14 hard years. Jacob was disciplined by God. Hebrews Chapter 12, verses 5 to 8 says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons and daughters. For what son and daughter is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons and daughters. The author of Hebrews is saying, if you have, or if you are experiencing the discipline of God, cheer up and know that he loves you because he only disciplines his children. On the contrary, if you've never experienced the discipline of God, be concerned because you might be an illegitimate child. The discipline that God gives Jacob is that he allows Jacob to taste the bitterness of his own sin. Jacob the deceiver gets deceived because God knew that Jacob's sin of deceiving, it would kill him if he was not transformed by tasting the bitterness of his own medicine. 
I find, I find this so interesting. It's almost like a doctor giving someone small doses of what they are allergic to in order to get over their allergies. Or a, or a vaccination shot uh, where you're given a small dose of the virus in order for your body to become immune. God graciously disciplines us through our sin and through our sinful choices. He allows us to taste the bitterness of our sin so that as we do, we prayerfully return and we turn back to God. What I'm talking about is the grace and gift of repentance, which is the aim of all of God's discipline, is to get us to return back to the love and presence of God. Repentance is what transforms us and leads us to lean not on our own understanding, but in all our ways trust in him. The discipline of God is always motivated by his love for the purpose of our transformation. The heart of God behind his hand of providence and discipline is always love and grace. I mean, look at God's heart behind his hand here in, in the story of Jacob. In a few chapters, Jacob the deceiver will return home transformed, having received a new name from God. No longer Jacob the cheater, but Israel which means let God prevail. He receives a new name and he would be reminded for the rest of his life that God will prevail through Jacob and his family. Salvation will come through Jacob and his family to the world. God's heart behind his hand is also seen in the life of Leah. I mean, I could preach a whole sermon on Leah. Uh, Leah, disregarded by her father, used as a pawn by by her own father in his scheming, she's rejected by Jacob, unloved, not wanted. But it's Leah, not Rachel, who becomes the mother of Judah, from which comes King David. And from the house of David comes King Jesus. Leah, the wrong woman, becomes the mother of the Savior of the world. Talk about sovereign grace working in unexpected ways. God's heart behind his hand is also seen in Jesus. Jesus would be deceived at night, turned over to Roman authorities by one of his closest friends. And Jesus did not feel like going to the cross. He really wanted another way for salvation besides his crucifixion, but he leaned not on his own understanding, but he trusted his father's ways because he knew his father's heart behind his father's hand. And Jesus would be put to death, bearing the weight of sin and drinking the cup of wrath to the dregs, tasting the bitterness of sin and death so that he could cure the world of sin, so that he could transform the world. Christ Central, King Jesus wants nothing more than to walk with you on your journey of transformation, which lasts a lifetime. Would you trust that God is at work in providence and in times and discipline to bring you to a place of turning back to him and trusting his heart behind his hands is always a heart of love and grace. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would transform us, that you would allow us to, to see that you love us, that your grace is poured out, even when we don't acknowledge, even when we don't depend, even when we're not praying, you're at work. You're at work in all of our lives this morning, and I don't know how you're at work in providence and in discipline in the lives of everybody here this morning. You do and they do. We do. I pray that you, by your spirit, would lead us to trust 
and your heart of love and grace that abounds to us, that we would know it is a heart of love and grace because of what Christ has done on our behalf. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.